Good morning, Chapel family. It's so good to be together again, even in this virtual space, and uh, to worship our Lord together, to uh, study the Lord's Word together, and to honor our fathers. Happy Father's Day to all of you out there this morning. And uh, thank you, girls, for that wonderful tribute to our dads. We appreciate you, fathers, how significant and important fathers are by pretty much every measure to the health of children, to the strength of families, and ultimately to the strength of society itself. And uh, so we appreciate you and we want to encourage you as you look to be faithful and godly men in your homes. To that end, would you join me and let's pray before we come to the Lord's Word. Father, we are grateful to be together this morning. We are grateful, especially this morning, for our dads. Uh, We thank you that you have given us fathers, uh, all of us who have had uh, good dads. We we realize what a precious and wonderful gift that is. Uh, Men who have been faithful to care for us, to nurture us, to love and to follow you. And uh, Father, we, we, we bring before you this morning all the fathers who are watching this morning, those who are a part of this church. Uh, Father, we ask your grace upon them, uh, how they need your strength to give them uh, wisdom that they need to uh, in raising children to give them um, courage to stand even in difficult days and at times to make difficult decisions as, as dads. I pray that you indeed would help our men to be uh, good reflections of you to their families, that as their children look to them, that they see reflected in them your glory and your goodness, your graciousness and your love and your care. So, Father, we put these men in your hands and ask your grace on them. And now as we come to your word, we ask that you would lead us this morning, that you would meet us here, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts as we look into your word. Teach us and change us and shape us and make us more like Jesus. In his name we ask it. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. As we continue here in Hebrews 11, learning about living by faith. Most of you, I'm sure, have been to cemeteries. You've noticed that tombstones generally are engraved with the date that someone was born and also the date that they died. And then often between those two dates, there's a hyphen, a little dash. All of that person's life is represented by that single dash between those two dates. These opening verses of chapter 12 describe our life as Christians, our life of faith as a dash, as it were. And here this dash is a race. In chapter 11, it showed us what living by faith looks like. We saw faith demonstrated through the lives and the stories of Old Testament heroes of the faith. Now these first three verses here of chapter 12 are intended to encourage and to equip and to challenge us to live by faith and to run this race of our life well. 
Here in these first three verses, we discover four critical characteristics of faith that lives, uh, faith that lives life well and faith that finishes life well. Last week we saw the first of these four characteristics. It, it was the partnership of faith, the understanding that we are not alone, that our race is not a solo race, it is a relay. As believers, we are connected to one another, and we're connected to all the faithful followers of God through the ages. We live and we run our race in partnership with them and with one another, with all faithful believers in Christ. And this morning, we're going to note a second characteristic of faith that finishes well. It's a faith that is an unhindered faith. Follow along as I read verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The word race implies to us... Uh, that the participants in a race are moving forward, that they're making progress towards a goal with the aim of winning or at least of finishing. Our life of faith has a beginning, a starting point, and it's when we trust Jesus Christ. And it has a finish line in heaven when we see Jesus face to face, begins and ends with Jesus this life of faith. And in between those two is this dash of our lives. And the whole implication in this description of our life as a race is that there should be progress in our life of faith, progress in this race. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he told them, run in such a way as to get the prize. We should want to run well in our race not just to simply just pass through it, to just uh, nonchalantly wander through this life, but we should want to run it well and to win it. To the Galatians in chapter 5 of Galatians, the Apostle Paul wrote this, however. He said, you were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? In other words, Paul asks, you were running great, but who or what stopped you from making progress? Sometimes we get like those Galatians. We're not making any or much progress in the life of faith. So this morning, I wonder, it's a good time to ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are you doing? Is your walk with Jesus Christ deeper and stronger than it was a year ago? Deeper and stronger than ever? Or is it pretty much stagnated? Is it the same today as it was years ago? Or even worse, instead of being closer to Jesus Christ today than you were in the past, do you find yourself today socially distanced? If we want to progress well, if we want to finish well in our race, in our living by faith, if we want to grow in our relationship with Christ, our passage today exposes two things that we need to cut out of our life. 
We're focusing this morning still back in verse 1. We're, we're here last week. We're going to be here this week and next week still in, in verse 1 because there's a lot of stuff here. But we're just on one phrase we're going to focus on this morning here in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We need to, as the title really for this message is, and the, the, the main characteristic of faith we're focusing on this morning, we need to become unhindered. And it calls us to lay two things aside, to cut two things out of our life. The first, it says, lay aside, let us lay aside every weight. Serious runners are fanatical about what they wear in a race. No baggy clothes that might catch the wind and slow them down. And every article of clothing needs to be as light as possible. Last week I mentioned my college roommate, Roger, the marathon runner. I remember when we were rooming together how he was constantly reviewing uh, all of his running gear and trying to find out how he could save one or two more ounces of weight just by changing, going to different shoes or different shorts. I wouldn't know, but he said that when you're running 26 miles and 385 yards, every single ounce makes a difference. And that's what this verse is saying. We need to cut out all the unnecessary weight. As we apply it to our life of faith, it's calling for us to get to get unhindered and to remove from our lives literally everything or anything which slows us down spiritually. Anything which keeps us from growing in Christ. Anything which distracts our affections from Christ. Anything which keeps us from serving Christ. And so the Apostle Paul makes an interesting comment over in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 10, he says, Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. See, I think far too often we, or at least I, only ask one question regarding decisions or activities in my life or our lives. We'll ask, is this wrong? And if the answer to that question is no, then we jump right in. But Paul is saying here something different. He says, just because something is morally okay, just because it's permissible, just because the Bible doesn't say something is a sin, doesn't mean that it won't weigh us down, doesn't mean it won't slow us down in our life of faith. Therefore, it's calling us to move beyond the question, is this wrong, and ask the question, is this best? Is there something better for me to do with my time? Is there some better place to expend my strength and my resources? Is there something more deserving of my attention and my affections? I, I don't know, but I imagine that in most races that are organized out there, I bet most of them don't have rules that you can't wear a parka or that you can't wear snow boots. Or that you can't carry a lunch pail or a bowling ball. (laughs) Rules like that are unnecessary because no one who's seriously running in a race would do that. 
It would be ridiculous, crazy. The point of Scripture here is it's really the same for us. If following God is our goal, if heaven is really our hope, if heaven is unimaginably amazing and it's eternal, then it should change everything about how we view life and how we live life here today. Jesus, the one man who really knows heaven, who has been there, he said in Matthew chapter 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a great treasure in a field. He says he immediately and he joyfully sold everything he had so that he could purchase that field. In other words, Jesus is saying that there is nothing on earth that begins to compare with the glories and with the value and with the treasure that heaven is. And Jesus says, therefore, we should live for heaven. Therefore, as Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 6, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust uh, corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. There is nothing wrong with houses. There's nothing wrong with cars. There's nothing wrong with computers and there's nothing wrong with boats and there's nothing wrong with clothes. There's nothing wrong with toys. But we shouldn't let such things get in the way of what truly matters. We are not to let those things divert our attention and our affections off of loving and following Jesus. And so this phrase here, to lay aside everything that weighs us down is calling for us to get rid of anything that gets rid, or excuse me, anything that gets in the way of laying up treasure in heaven. To get rid of anything that gets in the way of knowing God. Anything that gets in the way of being closer to Him. And I think when we make that our aim, when we start the process to start finding out what is it in our life that is is being a distraction, that's being a diversion, that's weighing us down, I think that what we'll discover is that there are some things that are perfectly acceptable for other people, but they slow me down or they slow you down. You know, we find it easy sometimes to find time for hobbies and sports and watching TV but we find it difficult to find time for spiritual growth. This text is saying, lay aside some of those other things. Those other things that may be fine for other people, but for me, in my situation, I need to let this hobby go. Or I need to cut down on the sports that I watch, or whatever it is. We might find that some things are not immoral, but those things that aren't immoral, they aren't wrong, they are unwise or unhealthy for me. One example is debt. The book of Proverbs says that <clears throat> the borrower is slave to the lender. Your debt, if you have debt, it may be keeping you and probably is keeping you from being free to use your financial resources to serve God however you wish. If that's the case, lay it down. Aim to get rid of debt. 
Some things may not slow others down, but they slow me down. Or they slow you down. Maybe in your life, social media is one of those things. For some people, social media is an effective tool for evangelism, a way to share Christ, a way to minister to other people. And that might work for some people, but for you, maybe social media is just a time waster or worse, something which leads you into sin. Maybe you need to unplug from all or some or just some of the time you spend with social media. Just a few examples. All of these things are something between us and God, not something for us to compare ourselves to others or to impose our ideas on others. But we are, each one of us, to be concerned to lay aside every weight, everything that slows us down. That's the first part of unhindering our faith. Back to our verse here in verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. So secondly, we are to lay aside the sin which clings so closely to us. Or as some other translations put it, uh, lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. In Bible times, people wore long robes. Uh, most of us haven't been there today. We don't live like that. But if you've ever had the occasion, and men, uh, most of us haven't, but if we've ever had the occasion to try running in a robe or a long skirt, you'll learn very quickly it doesn't go very well. I spent lots of time in choirs as a kid, so I had choir robes. And you learned you can't run well in them. Your feet and your legs get tangled up in the robes. So in the Bible times, if you were needing to run, if you're needing to be active, then you'd take your robe and you'd pull it up and you would tuck it into your belt, creating, in a, in a sense, some makeshift shorts. In the old English translations, like the King James Version, uh, you'll find it translated as girding up your loins. That's the picture here. When he, when he talks about Getting, laying aside the things that we get tangled up in. He's talking about dealing with these, these clothes that get down and our feet get tangled up and caught up in them. If you're going to run well, you can't be tripping over your robe or anything else that you're wearing or carrying. So we need to lay that aside, to deal with it. But notice what the passage says here, what it is that will trip us up, what it is that will cause us to stumble and to fall. And it says it's the sin. It's sin that clings close. It's sin that easily entangles. The point is that every one of us is susceptible. Every one of us, the greatest, biggest hindrance we face as God's athletes in this race, is sin. It is what is most likely to to trip us up, to quickly knock us to the ground and sideline us in this race of life. For that reason, sin is serious. But even though sin is serious, and most of us would, would readily say, yeah, I get that, Truthfully, most of us often think we can hang on to some of our favorite sins. 
especially those little private, quote, harmless ones. And all we have are rationalizations and our justifications why my little sin here isn't so bad. But it's those subtle things like greed or gluttony or gossip. Oh, it's not gossip when I'm just talking with my best friend. <laughs> it's not gossip when I talk, you know, to this person. But I notice the scripture doesn't make a distinction or lust, or pride, or bitterness. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but we cling to bitterness because, after all, they deserve it. They don't deserve to be forgiven. I know I'm, I have a problem with my anger. I'm ill-tempered. I'm irritable. But we rationalize it. I learned that from my dad. You know, it's in my genes. I have red hair, whatever. No excuses. Sin is serious. Disrespect of authority. We know that we're supposed to respect every human authority, Scripture says, and yet we find it easy to say, well, but, you know, that president, that governor, that whoever it is, I have a right not to respect them. But that's not what the scripture says. Sin is serious and we can't afford to justify it and to rationalize it and to hang on to those little sins. Uh, 1662, that was even before my time, the Act of Conformity was passed in England. It stated that it was it's in that act of conformity, it said that on August 17th, 1662, that was going to be the last day that nonconformist preachers were going to be allowed to preach in their churches. In the following days and weeks, following the implementation of that act of conformity, 3,000 nonconformist believers were killed. 60,000 families were disrupted. 2,500 Puritan pastors were exiled. Edmund Calamy was a popular preacher in London in those days. He was a nonconformist. He was a Puritan. August 17, 1662, the day that that act was going to take effect, or the, the last day before it took effect, it was his last sermon in his church. You can only begin to imagine what that sermon must have been like, how emotional it was, and how ominous that day was. In that message he preached, he made this remarkable statement to his congregation. He said to them, you have experienced a calamity. This is a calamitous thing. This is a calamitous event. You know, we think of um, this whole COVID virus as a calamity. We haven't experienced nearly what these folks did in that day. What a thing. To, in those days that followed, 3,000 believers losing their lives, 60,000 families uprooted, uh, uh, enduring some persecution, Churches, 2,500 of them losing their pastors. But notice what else he says. But there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. 
Read that again because that's astounding. He says, there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. Later on in that sermon, he said, there is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest misery. I'm blown away by that statement. You see, we, or at least I, tend to get distressed about calamities. When things go wrong, when my world falls apart, I get upset, I get distressed, I I get feeling sorry for myself. And we're usually frustrated, we're upset about our miseries. But generally, we are tolerant about our sins. Personally, I'm passionate about my comfort, but so often careless about my sin. Are you that way? I have a feeling many of us are. And that's because we fail to understand exactly what Edmund Calamy understood. There is more evil in the least sin than in the greatest calamity. John MacArthur spoke about the seriousness of sin, and I thought he said it well. Why we need to take sin seriously, why we need to treat it seriously, he said, it dishonors God. Sin dishonors God. It abuses mercy. It despises grace. It presumes on forgiveness. It defiles worship. It defiles worship and service and fellowship. It stains. It taints. It poisons. It destroys everything good and holy. But even more importantly, Jesus had some words to say about the seriousness with which we should treat sin. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Those are Drastic words, they're harsh words. But Jesus' point is that sin is seriously, and we are to fight it, and we're to resist it with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But again, sadly, most of us don't do that. We treat it casually. But if we take this passage to heart and we say, okay, I need to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles me, it raises the question, how am I to do that? How can we throw off sin? Because there are times where I begin to think, I'm not sure I can. I've tried to fight sin before and I failed. I tried to stand up against it and I've caved. I folded like a taco. You know? John Piper writes about these sins that entangle us, and he said, don't rise up against the Bible at this point and say, I can't change. It's an assault on God. If you read this verse, Hebrews chapter 12, 1, and you go away saying, it can't happen. Hindrances can't be removed. Sin can't be laid aside. He says, God has not spoken this command for nothing. And this entire book is written to undergird these practical commands. 
The purpose of this book, the purpose of these commands here is to tell us that it is possible to make progress in this. It is, prog- it is possible to move ahead in this race and to lay aside sin. Let me give us, as we start to wrap up, four biblical remedies, four biblical keys to help us cast off sin from our lives. The first is to confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9, many of you know that by heart. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Immediate, consistent, and deep confession is part of the cleansing process. And did you note the rest of that verse? Because if we do that, it says that He is faithful not only to forgive our sins, but to cleanse us. In other words, He helps, He he joins in in the process of cleaning us up, which leads us really to our next point. If we're going to lay aside sin, we not only need to confess it, we need to ask for God's help. Earlier this year, we studied the Lord's Prayer. You may recall that one of the lines in the Lord's Prayer is, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It is to be our prayer that we ask God to keep us out of temptation, to deliver us from evil. Jesus talking to his disciples the night in which he was about to be betrayed and, and um, the day, right before he was crucified, he told the disciples, he'd said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Matthew chapter 26. We need to pray and ask for God's help if we're going to lay aside the sin that so easily trips us up and entangles us. Thirdly, meditate on God's Word. Read it. Listen to it. Think about it. Memorize. David, writing Psalm 119, says, Your Word I've hidden in my heart. Verse 9, he says, So that I might not sin against you. Over in Psalm 37, verse 31, it says, The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. What it means is that the person who keeps God's word in his heart is the one who can stand against sin. If we're going to lay aside the sin that entangles us, we need to feed ourselves on God's word. We need to internalize it, meditate on it, memorize it. As the old saying goes, this book, the Word of God, will keep you from sin or else sin will keep you from this book. Fourthly, get defensive. Get defensive. Guard yourself. Romans chapter 13, verse 14, it says, Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We need to remove opportunities and temptations for sin whenever and wherever possible. So that if there's, if something over there tempts us, don't go over there. Go over here. If there's something in our home, in our life that tempts us to sin, we need to remove it, get it out of there. Whether it's, uh, you know, the TV or the computer or whether it's, uh, whatever it is, the alcohol in the cabinet, get rid of whatever it is. If something is tempting you to sin, make no provision for the flesh 
get defensive. Four practical keys. I hope that you'll uh, put those to work even this week. Perhaps this morning God has been dealing with you about some sin that's been tripping you up or about some weight that's in your life, something that's not necessarily sin, but it's just something that's getting in the way, that's slowing you down in your race, in your, in your desire to follow and to obey Christ. I urge you this morning, whatever those things are, to bring them to the Lord right here, right now. Don't wait till some other time. Bring it to Him right now and ask Him to help you throw it off so that you can run well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's so intensely practical. Thank you that it teaches us spiritual realities, things that we would not think of or know had you not told us. We would not have recognized our propensity to sin, how we need to live by faith. We wouldn't know of you to believe that you are that, and that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek us. How we... We depend on your word in all of these things. Father, we do recognize the truth that we have seen already in this passage about the race, that we have a tendency to get discouraged because we forget that we're connected, that we are in partnership with other believers, as we saw last week and now this week, that we are tripped up, that we're weighed down by things, sin and distractions. Lord, help us to set those aside. Help us to listen to the, the other things that are good we're going to see in the next two weeks. And Father, may we put all these things to work in our lives so that we might live faithfully, so that we might be um, run this life of this race of life well, so that we win. So that when we cross the finish line one day and we stand in heaven before you, we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. How we long for that. We ask these things in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen.